0: Welcome to Business School. This is Lesson 1, Corporate Responsibility in the Age of Black Lives Matter. We have a very special guest who's an old friend of Steven. I'm going to let you intro him.
1: So Dave Salvant is the co-founder and president of Squire Technologies. Squire is, the best way to sum it up is like open table for barbershops. So they help Customers book appointments and it helps the barbers themselves, the barber shops manage their business in a, in a smarter way and attract more customers. It's a really awesome product. I've known Dave for about four years now, and he's just one of the hardest working, smartest, most thoughtful people. And, you know, since George Floyd was murdered on national TV, once it was, you know, broadcast everywhere. Um, obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement has become huge and something that every company not only should address, but they can't afford not to address. And so what we're going to unpack with Dave is how companies should be addressing this, what can they do, what should they do, and then also learn from Dave, like, what has it been like being a Black entrepreneur? Because unfortunately, the representation of the Black community in startups is way lower than it should be. Um, Yeah,
0: and as as, We, on this show, continue to talk about the wider culture of the startup community, the venture community, the investment community. When you look through this lens of Black Lives Matter, diversity, representation, it becomes just as problematic as so many other categories of the world that we live in. And I think Dave is somebody that has a really unique perspective on that. In a lot of ways, like you, he came up through as classic a startup ecosystem as you can come up through, starting at Y Combinator, raising venture money based in New York, and to the point where now he's raised over $40 million and has a headcount of 50 people and is going to scale aggressively in the next year. So that's... Why I was really excited that we had him on, and we get to some really interesting things. So, without further ado, enjoy the episode with Dave.
1: Let's uh, let's let's get into it. So, uh, Dave, you and I met each other about four years ago, mm-hmm. and that was at Y Combinator. We both were in the same batch, but for those of you who don't know what Y Combinator is, it's a startup accelerator. It's the most prestigious one in the in the world, I think. It has like a 1% acceptance rate. And when there's about hundred companies per batch, twice a year. And in each batch you get broken up into into all these different groups. And the smallest group that you get put into is like you and seven or eight other companies. Uh, Squire and Furrow were in the same group. Dave, you guys are probably the only company that I regularly talk to.
2: Wow! Yeah, as Stephen mentioned, that we, we go back four years, twenty sixteen, uh, summer sixteen. One of the first guys you know I met coming into the the batch, and one of the first guys that I really clicked with. You we were in business school at the time, um, yeah, and, and was able to you know do both, which is very very impressive. But yeah, so Stephen, great friend, great great fellow entrepreneur. Learned a lot from this, bounced ideas off him for years, and and now you know we, we're here. Or June nineteenth.
1: That's right. Yeah, today is Juneteenth. It's uh, it's very appropriate for the topic of corporate responsibility in general, but specifically how companies should and should not address this, what role they should play, who's doing a good job, who's not doing a good job, and then kind of learning from you. Like, what is it like being a black entrepreneur? Before we get into that, can you tell everybody about Squire?
2: Yes, Squire is a software system for Barbershops. So essentially, we, we power the back end operations of the barbershop. So everything from CRM, scheduling, point of sale, payroll, in the future, financial products, a neobank for these underserved customers. And we just allow them to operate more efficiently and effectively. Yeah, so that's Squire summed up in a, a shop.
0: When you first started Squire, was that a big pain point that you'd experienced or you knew people who had experienced that you were solving for in my I mean I, I go to barbershop and it seems like I mean now everybody seems to use Square just for payment, but what what was that issue that you were attacking in the early days?
2: So it was actually solving for, you know, my issue. So I used to have to get my hair cut being a professional or Wall Street literally every other week. And that process of 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 getting the haircut was very arduous. So Normally, you have to back in 2015, you had to call or text your barber, you had to go to the barbershop and wait for sometimes hours, and you had to bring cash. So, 2015 was right around the time where Uber and, and Open Table and all these other, other companies were really starting to take off. So, my thought process why can't we apply that technology, that ease, that ease of use that um, these technologies provide for their respective industries? to an industry that I love that hasn't been changed for 50 years. So that was the kind of impetus to kind of create something, a product that made sense for barbershops and solved my need.
0: One of the things, and this is off topic, but I'm just really curious, don't barbershops already have razor thin margins? And to add a software to that small of a business is there is
2: there room for it was that a tricky uh, thing to I, do? Mean, I mean I, I think you know from an outsider looking in it, it would think that you guys have thin margins but they really don't the good ones run really good businesses and they have in order to run a really good business you have to have software to organize it all you just can't do it by yourself effectively uh, so that's where we come in place. So we don't charge that much. We charge $100 to $150 for the software. And we make the lion's share of our revenue from processing the transactions and a booking fee that we assess to the customer when he books and pays through Squire. So I think the net effect and the added efficiency of our software to your overall business. Uh, allows the, the owner-operator to make free up more time and, and actually focus on what he does best, which is cutting hair.
1: It also allows you to... What you just talked about, if you're a customer. If you, know there was, if you knew there was going to be a long wait time, you, you, you don't necessarily want to go and wait hours to get your hair cut. I assume you don't. If you were to be able to book an appointment more easily, that spreads out the demand and actually avoids people just leaving because the, the line's too long, right? So they, they, they can actually... Barbers can actually get more business, in theory, by organizing it like this. Mm -hmm.
0: Exactly. So transitioning to the the overall theme of this episode, obviously, what's been happening in the world has been on every TV screen, and it's been in every room, and everybody's having conversations about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think when we were talking about this episode and this show, one of the topics that we felt both ill-equipped to discuss on our own, but also think is a, an important one, is what should brands do? Obviously, brands are not at the forefront of this conversation, and participation seems to be also important. So I think just to start, how would you answer the question of what do you think the responsibility is of brands in a moment like this? What would be a good representation, and what would be a not as good?
2: I mean, I think people oftentimes go with popular opinion. Like this is popular right now, and it's like all the companies. So it's safe. It's safe to to stand up for Black Lives Matter. It's it's safe to do all these things that you see now with publicity because no one is gonna you're not gonna lose customers over it. I think what brands need to do is hire more African Americans in places of leadership where they can make a change. Like if you look at the household wealth of Black people in America, it's less than $2 trillion or something like that. And if you compare that to the wealth of white people, it's 60, 70 times greater. And the graph, you know, from the 1970s is even more alarming. Like, black people stayed flat, and white people, Asian people, and other other races, they actually increased exponentially. So I I think what's happening in America with police brutality and everything like that, it starts with wealth. It starts with if you have the wealth, you can kind of create the policies because you can vote and your taxes go towards certain policies and procedures and you can actually invoke the change you want to see. So I, I think to circle back, what corporations need to do is hire people, pay them a fair wage and pay them you know, what their counterparts make and actually try to increase wealth so that can affect the communities that, you know, these folks live in. So I I think it's kind of like twofold. Number one, from a brand, how do you combat systematic racism and how do you create wealth within black communities so it can counteract that kind of oppression, if that makes sense?
1: And that's the single most important thing to do is what you're saying is like just hire people, which is permanent change, right? It's not social media. It's not preaching. It's like, just actually take action and do something.
2: Yeah, take action. And you see a lot of companies now doing it. Like, you see Google came out today, you know, saying they're going to allocate $175 million to like African American like companies and stuff like that. You know, SoftBank, you know, other day, $100 million are going to invest in black founders and stuff like that and Latinx founders. But, I think it's kind of disrespectful that you see some of these brands come out and say, we, we, we support the movement, but where were you two years ago? Where were you a year ago? And it can't be just lip service that goes away when the news cycle about this ends. And and that's my fear is that, you know, it's cool now, but when something else takes over the news cycle, they don't worry about it anymore.
0: Yeah. You mentioned uh, like, where were you two years ago when you started the company and you started raising money? I mean, you've been in this startup community for a while now, for at least mm-hmm. four years, you you started at Y Combinator. What was the environment like as a black entrepreneur I mean, four years ago? Two years ago,
2: is, It's tough. It's tough. You know, like even our series A a year ago was tough. You know, our series B wasn't tough, but our our, our, our series A was tough. Like you know, it's, it's sad to say, but we were in the business didn't change categorically to w- what it is today. You know, we went into the series A with less customers, but our economics were the same. And we felt, you know, I, I felt that people didn't take the time to double click. And if we were not black, they would have taken the time to double click and, and really look at the business. The ones that did take the time to double click, you know, ended up with a great deal. But. You know, I think had we not been black doing barbershop things, you know, I, I think, you know, we would have got a better shake, a fair shape uh, going into it.
1: Can you can you dig into that? Do you think people didn't double click because you and song are black? Or do you think they didn't double click because they didn't understand your business model, which is based around barbershops, which are such a big part of black culture?
2: I mean, I think it was a it was a, a a mix of both. I think if we were two white guys doing a barbershop thing, do I think we would have got a a kind of more in depth look? Absolutely, I, I do think that, and I I don't want to think that, but you know, when you go into, you know, we were part of the YC Series A program, and you know, if we look at our, in our cohort, our numbers were categorically better than better than other companies, and they had an easier time raising us. Why is that? If you look at the, oh, the markets now, that's bullshit. Look, just do your research. They didn't do they didn't do the research. Uh and, and now everybody's reaching out to us because you know we validated. Like how did we raise a round so fast after our last round? And we're probably gonna raise another round this year. So like it's their ignorance or the VC's ignorance led them to miss out on a deal. And I, I really I really feel that way. Talk about
1: that. Uh you just raised a bunch of money, thirty four million bucks. CRV Tiger Global. These are the big dogs, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you guys raised from some of the best VCs, quote unquote. You've raised over forty-six million bucks in total. How did you notice? Know, like, how did you notice that change? Like from being really hard in the beginning to it working. How did you get people to double click in?
2: It's either one of two things. It's either confirmation bias or unconfirmation bias, and what I mean by that is people. Ask you softball questions when they're just trying to confirm what they already believe. Unconfirmation bias is when they ask you really, really, really difficult questions just to confirm what they believe already. So Series A, we have a lot of, we had a lot of unconfirmation bias. Like, why are you asking those type of questions? Like, who asked those questions? And then on our Series B was the polar opposite, where everybody was asking softball questions. Like, you know, somebody just softball and then you just want you to hit it out of the part, and they tell you the sign and you know it's gonna be a, a change up and they want you to hit the t- it, it, it's that kind of energy and that kind of mindset and that when you realize it's a different story you know that was different, and and also more people wanted to talk to you you know you were the hot chick you weren't pitching people were pitching you and you had multiple term sheets. you know we turned down a, a partner meeting from one of the most prestigious you know VC companies in, in the world uh, that didn't invest we could afford to do that because you know we had multiple term sheets and, and we could have got more
0: so um you know i I've been in the startup community not as a founder but as an employee and a consultant for in new york for for a long time and familiar with the venture community i don't there are very few people of color that I've met in the venture community. Was that your experience? Like when you were fundraising, I mean, you've raised a huge amount of money. You've raised over $40 million. How often were you
2: sitting across from somebody that wasn't white? So so I think it's it's better to group it non-black. None. I, I, I've never met Series B, Series A. Never met with a black DC person, Series A or B.
0: Wow. So z- zero times you met, you were able to meet with a yeah, venture. The, an
2: investing partner. So somebody that can actually write a check. Right now, they want to do a lot of lift service and say, well, oh, I got a principal. I got the VC community needs guys that can write checks that are, aren't white, you know, because they missed out on opportunity. You know, like the world is a big place. And, you know, America in general is becoming more and diverse. You know, by, I think by 2040, uh, which is not that long from now, you know, there would not be, a white majority in this country. So why would you, why would you invest in diverse founders because they are building for a world that you don't know and don't don't have access to or aren't familiar with, and you're just missing out on an opportunity?
1: I have a theory, and I I applied this to female founders, but I want to see if this is true for you as a as a black founder. VCs tend to invest in things they know, and then they're, in some cases they are willing to learn more about something that they don't know if they think they can make a lot of money off it, right? And so where you have a challenge, especially in consumer businesses, where people tend to think that like, oh, consumer products, consumer tech, like it should be easy to grasp, right? I understand fundamentally how it works without double clicking into it, even if I have no real experience with that product. And so I've heard of, you know, female founded companies who sell female products, bras, tampons, et cetera. And they sit in front of VCs and the the, the male VCs are thinking like, I don't know how this works. I, I can't relate to this problem. So so therefore, it must, like, I have no idea if it's a legitimate problem. And I have to, like, go ask my wife. And they think that that's, like, a, a valid enough way to, to to double-click into something to understand it. For you, I'm guessing, they didn't understand the value proposition or how this worked because they didn't, like, these guys don't go to barbershops.
2: I guess too often they, they associate us. First of all, they automatically assume we're talking black barbershops. 100% of the time, uh, they, they thought, you know, black guys focus on black barbershops. And then why would we do that? It just doesn't make any sense. And then we had to really explain that, like, you know, we don't focus on, on black barbershops. We focus on all barbershops because, you know, uh, if we're trying to build a really big business, we have to talk about all barbershops, you know, and it has to be relatable, you know, it has to be relatable. and. You know, you get your hair cut the same way I get my hair cut, you know? So that was the beginning of, it's just a kind of like a assumption that we weren't talking to black bubs. So once we had to get off that hurdle, uh, we did And then they, they always talk about market size. They always talk about how big is the market, blah, 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 blah. It took a while for us to kind of get past that hurdle. Uh, we don't get that question anymore that much, but we did, at our A, we did, you know, not so much that I'd be, but, but the fact is, if you make a lot of money from your customer, you don't need to have a hundred thousand customers. You just don't, you know, you just don't. And we make a lot of money from our customers. The thing that I
1: think is going to be helpful for a lot of, a lot of people, and you can probably guess, I've had, and Phineas and I have both had conversations, a lot of awkward conversations with other white people recently. People, people just feel uncomfortable with like, okay, how do we deal with this, right? Like, yes, people should have been doing more already to combat racism and they just, they didn't. And so it's like, now what should they do? And I think it's especially challenging for companies to figure out like, okay, I do care about this. This is a human rights issue and I want my company to do the right thing, but- What are some other things they should do? How should they talk about it? I know people don't want to feel like they're just like, I think a lot of companies, would you agree that some companies are getting a little too preachy on social media right now about this?
2: Yeah, I I, I agree. I think, think, you know, like shooting content, like, hey, does this have all white people in there? You know, like, is that reflective of the community I'm serving? Or, Or is that reflective of my potential customers? Is this inclusive of the people that I want to work for my company? I think these small steps lead to big change, you know, because then what, what you see is a little kid sees your company and sees your commercial, you know, that happens to be black. And he sees that commercial and like, hey, you know, I could be in there, you know, like it's these little things that combat systematic racism where it's like you seeing stuff allows you to believe that you can be there or you sit in that room and that makes you more inclusive of other folks. Content is extremely important. And I think the more diverse you make your content, the more it will appeal to folks that thought they were excluded and now are included and thus creating a cycle of inclusion moving forward. You know, I I think that's important.
0: How has this moment impacted your business? Like over the last couple of weeks even, has have you really felt anything different just in the environment around being a, uh, I mean, being I mean, a black I mean, entrepreneur today?
1: If, if you can filter out COVID, because I know that has also
2: had a big bigger- impact. Mean, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, so more people have been reaching out, uh, saying how I'm doing. I'm just like, you know, I'm doing fine. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think a lot of people have been missing out. I'm um, just asking, you know, how I'm doing, you know, wellness checks, you know, especially right after the George Floyd incident. I don't know how authentic it is. I, I just can't tell. But people have been reaching out. You know, it was it was pretty difficult, but, you know, people have been reaching out. And I think, you know, like real change has come from it, you know, like real change like the federal holiday it's not it's not approved but legislation was introduced to make June 19th a federal holiday New York made it a state holiday so that's real change you know board members are being added to these corporations chokeholds are being outlawed in, in many police departments around the country that's real change and it's it's sad it takes it took somebody to be kind of like executed to realize that but there's real change happening and I'm looking at this From a positive angle, stuff is going to change, and it's important.
1: Do you appreciate people reaching out, even if they're – I know you said you're questioning whether or not some of them are truly authentic with it and genuine, which is a fair question, but is it appreciated or not really?
2: It's appreciated if it leads to real change. I don't know what's in somebody's heart. I don't know if it's because they feel guilty. I don't know if they genuinely want to see something happen. But, you know, the throughput of it all is, stuff is happening, and it's happening fast. And it's, I think it will be a positive outcome for African-Americans around the country. Um, I, I think that people need to be aware of this around. I think this was like a slap in the face for America. They're like, wake up, wake the fuck up. These people have been oppressed for, for years, like systematically. This is not something that we can look past or or say this wasn't racism. Systematic racism exists and we have to fix it. If we're going to realize the full potential of America, we have to fix this problem. We have to. And, you know, it's not going to be done overnight, but hopefully that this will be a starting point for a new trajectory in in the history of this country.
0: I have a question just about, As a business that represents Black culture, one of the things that I think we're seeing is a lot of other brands suddenly getting very public about not just what's happening in the world, but about Black culture. Are people reaching out for how to speak about this stuff? And is there cultural appropriation to some degree that's happening with these brands that are just tagging on?
2: It is, is, but but, but people are going to do that anyway, you know? I care mostly about putting your money where your mouth is, and and if you're gonna if you're gonna support communities and if you're gonna invest in communities, you know I could care less about you know what you say on social media because at the end of the day that's fleeting. You know it's fleeting. It's in the news cycle. I care mostly about investment. I, I care more about investing in schools and investing on in institutions that allow people to, you know, rise up from poverty, and create wealth for their families. And, and create legacy. To that ends, you're going to put your money where their mouth is and you want to post some stuff on social media. I care less because I care more so about the end result. And, and that's what's most important to me.
1: I know the, the best thing that companies can do is actually, like you said, put their money where their mouth is, make changes internally in their staff. Donating money is awesome. And then, like you said, creating the content to put that image out there that can change the world's perception, right? And change mm-hmm. who your customers can be in people's minds. Mm-hmm. a lot. I think a lot of brands feel the need to post about and talk about everything that they've done. At, at Burrow, I know we, we've struggled with this because we've, we have done a bunch of stuff, but I was kind of like, I, I, we sent out the initial email, right? We did social posts because I thought it was important to let our customers know where we stand on this very important yeah. issue. But I kind of felt like from that point on, we should just do, make these changes and then not talk about it. Just shut up and do it, right? I think is it important that people talk about it to, to show what they're doing as a way to influence others to do it too, right? Because it's kind of like a double-edged sword. You might, it's kind of like, don't brag about this stuff. But at the same time, if you do post about it, maybe, maybe it encourages other people to do it too.
2: I think it's a balance. It has to be a balance between doing what's right and also talking about who doing it too. I mean, you have to, you have to talk about it. So that's why I don't feel too bad because what's gonna happen if you talk about it, others are gonna see that, that you're doing it, and then you have this follow-on mentality, like, oh, you're doing, what are you doing? And then the net effect is something happens, you know? So you do it silently, nobody's gonna know about that but the people you're doing it for. If you promote it, then other people might get involved and, and amplify what you're doing, because they're gonna do it too. That, that's unfortunate, that's the society we live in these days but I don't care about it because what's the end goal, <laughs> you know, people like, like I, I'm a very goal oriented person, uh, meaning the means justify the ends, you know, like, I don't care, post away, you know, but as long as you, your throughput is there and launch you helping who am I to tell you don't post about it.
1: Fair. You're right. Even if it gets one other person or company to make a change, it's worth
2: mm-hmm. it. Exactly.
1: Um, so we talked a little bit about brands um, and what mm-hmm. they can do.
2: What should consumers do? I mean, support more designers of color, support more businesses that align with your goals, you know, support more creators. We live in such a consumer-driven economy in life. I, I think people have power to support who they want to support. And if you have you know, an artist or, or a small company that is dealing with or, or, you know, aligns with your values or supports creators of color, then you should purchase them, you know, because because allow somebody to do what they love and have income and create opportunities for other people. In life, in society, everything, and, and as an entrepreneur and, and as a running a company now, you see kind of like the domino effect of every decision you make. You know, you see it. So I think it's important that if, if you're North Star is to help folks of color, you need to make conscious decisions to help and support other communities of color.
0: Well, thanks so much for sharing, man. What's uh from the perspective of, of this movement or just in general, what's next for Squire? What are you looking forward to?
2: What are what is sort of man. the next chapter? I mean the next chapter is we're building on a neo bank for this underserved community. you know by and large, barbers or, or a whole or this franchise, they're underbanked. They don't have the necessary tools to keep up with you and I. So we, we just want to empower them to financial you know liberation you know by buying pre- banking products to be better stewards of the economy. So you know our banking products coming out, two, three, and we just want to, you know, get more barbershops on our platform and provide a better experience for men around the world to get something done that is a ritual in, in, in most cases. So, you know, we're going to keep on grinding towards that.
0: Real quick, I think obviously Stephen already knows this. How many people at your company right now and where are you guys based?
2: We're about 50 uh, now. We're, we're kind of remote. Uh, we were before covid hit we were like semi uh remote but now we're probably going fully remote we do have a, a office in buffalo new york as well as new york city buffalo has a special place in my heart it's uh, a city that went through when all the jobs left western new york all the, the factories closed you know it's important to have good jobs in that region of, of new york and new york city is home for us so we are just going of keep on growing hopefully we'll be up about 100 by the end of the year, uh, employees, and trying to you know get things done.
1: Dave, I am super proud of you guys. I know when we first started, we both were just scrapping, and either of us would accept a $5,000 check from anybody who would help us yeah. grow. Um,
2: yeah,
1: we did. It's amazing how, how how fast you guys have built this. this is, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. You're well on track to becoming the, the most successful company in our class. I think.
2: What do they say? The hard, the harder I work, the luckier I become, you know? <laughs> Once you get to this point, you start really thinking about, like, it's not about the money anymore. It's not about the accolades. It's about how are you impacting the next generation of entrepreneurs, you know? It's important that I don't get suited up. It's important. It's important that I dress the way I dress. It's important because the kids, the poor kids, in Brooklyn or Memphis, Tennessee or Houston, Texas or Los Angeles, it's just so far removed from them. They can't relate to somebody who's suited and booted. It just, they, they just can't, you know, because that's not what they grow up around. And that's not what success looks for them. So you have to be cognizant of who you are in order to affect the most change. So, you know, that's why, you know, I'm t-shirted out, Jordan's out, you know, because I think that's important.
1: That's so great, well Dave, thank you so much for doing this really appreciate it
2: yeah it's, and thank I, you thanks for having me uh, this is incredible what you guys are doing and you know, I really applaud you Stephen and burrow and you know all that you guys have been able to accomplish and I look forward to see what's what's next thank you I
1: appreciate it I'll talk to you soon We're, we'll right. to keep in touch i'll be I'll be less of a stranger now that i uh well, both of us. I kind of we think we went both went through a bit of a challenging time. Heads down, and maybe now we can both kind of pull our heads up a little bit. You did have a son,
2: which is you know yeah, no yeah, who's yeah, around here uh, running around. <laughs> <He's, yeah>. <laughs> That's <laughs> he's, awesome. He's, he's a handful.
1: <laughs> All right, cool. Thanks, Dave.
2: Right, well, thank you for your
1: time. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. <music> Let's do the post game. Go ahead. I think a lot of non-black led companies right now, are, they're too focused on how will I be viewed in this? Am I talking about it too much? Am I talking about it too little? Am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? How would that be perceived? And I think the focus needs to be on what can I actually do to make a difference? And then let me just do that. And then if I think it'll help other people make a change as well, I'll talk about it. But if not, whatever, like just focus on actually doing something different. And what does that mean? That means a commitment to diverse hiring and then creating an inclusive culture. If you can donate money, obviously. And the content piece and like any part of your business, that's public facing, the more inclusive that is, that sends a message that, you know, who can be your customer if your content is only white people. That's the yeah. message you're sending. That's who should buy your products.
0: Yeah. And I also heard from from Dave, like to some degree to let your customers and let people know where you stand, that's important. But beyond that, I don't really care. Uh, I care about the throughput. I care about the systemic change. And I thought that was interesting. You know, I think nothing motivates a business more than public shaming or public pushback. And I think what you're seeing today is a true cultural wave of everybody needs to be speaking about this. And so that scares everybody that wouldn't have spoken about it into speaking about it. And the intent behind it matters, sort of, um, but it's not really being analyzed. People like Dave are saying, we care about the changes that actually take place because ultimately the issue at hand Is systemic. The issue at hand is not that there are racist individuals in the world. The issue at hand is that there are systems that have been built up that inform the world we live in that are oppressive to minorities and even more specifically to the black community. So, what I think we just heard from Dave is like what we care about are things that will attack those systems that are in place. We don't care that much about whether or not somebody said something that was anti racist because that's not attacking the system at all um, or as much as it needs to.
1: Yeah, you're right. He almost said like, just make the change. You don't even have to understand why you're doing it. It's actually okay if, if a brand does something meaningful, talks about it, and then that forces another brand to do something, even though they're not fully behind it per se because they don't understand it, but that's okay, just do it. Um, yeah,
0: and like the things that are happening at a larger corporate level, are really positive and he mentioned some of those things board members being added those are that's a major change yeah. that a company makes that will have lasting impact you know he talked about we asked i asked him the question about sitting across from how many people when he was fundraising in the venture community was he sitting across from that were black i said people of color in general and he corrected me rightly saying well really the issue is if the question is about me sitting across from people that are black the answer is 0
1: yeah. The only one that at Y Combinator, we had Michael Siebel, who's now the CEO of Y Combinator. He's black. He's, he's one of our, we're super proud to have him as an investor. He's been incredibly helpful to us early on. And he just was added to the board of Reddit. Um, oh, cool. We've got, uh, Steve Huffman's also one of our investors. Um, so proud of that team. And, and yeah, like those are, those are the changes that, that make a difference. Um, Absolutely. One other thing I did want to talk about was like this diversity in in hiring or hiring out a diverse team. Unfortunately, I've heard people recently say like, well, I'm focused on just building out the best company possible. And I, you know, I can't be focused on hiring out people of a certain background or race or gender. And, And oftentimes a lot of startups face this where you're just like, I just need to hire quick. Like by the time you hire for a role in a startup, like you needed that person to start three months ago. And so when you start recruiting, you're like, oh shoot, I, I, you know, I can't, I, I, it's so hard to follow these, these practices, um, which are interview people from every background first before you make your decision and then pick the best candidate, of course, but like make sure that the pool that you're interviewing that has a chance to get that job is incredibly diverse. That may take longer for sure, because it means interviewing more people, but it's important. People always focus on that one singular hire at a time when they make that argument. And I'm going to make the case right now for why you should have a diverse team as early as possible. The smaller you are, the easier it is to make a big difference in your company's culture with literally one hire. If you have, I mean, this is an obvious case, but like if you have five people on your team, five guys, and the sixth is a woman, like your numbers just went up significantly, right? So you can make a. it's easier to make an impact on the culture early on. And then once you have a diverse team, that's what makes it easy to interview and attract diverse talent, right? A company with all white people is not going to attract a lot of black talent. It's just not. But if early on you focus on it and make it a priority, it'll make it significantly easier to hire talented black people in the future. And there's been tons of studies that show diverse teams are the most successful because you just get diverse backgrounds, diverse types of thinking, and that melting pot that happens pushes everybody forward to reach a better outcome. And so that's why you, like, it's so important that startups force it early. And I think too often we hear that it's hard to do it, but the benefits are there, number one. And number two, just kind of like ask yourself, what does it say about me if I'm, more willing to prioritize making a quick hire over doing the right thing in the long run. And just also like helping to make, literally make this country better. There is a portion of our population that is suffering from systemic racism, right? They're being held down. It's not that hard to take a little bit longer to hire to make sure that you build out a diverse team, right? Like that's totally achievable. And I think people need to unpack and ask themselves like, what am i willing to do to make the world better and this is not a hard one it's really not